Thanks, Dan. Good morning, everybody. Um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to meet your teacher in the back, um, age-appropriate setting for them to hear the scriptures. Um, and as they go, let me start us in a, a word of prayer. David in Psalm 19 wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Lord, all of creation, the, the beautiful night sky, the gorgeous sunrise, the, the noonday time, Lord, all of creation proclaims, it announces your glory. Lord, you made all of the universe to show how glorious you really are. Lord, everything from the, the stars above to the smallest little creature on earth was designed, it was put here to show your glory. And Lord, that includes us. So Father, this morning I pray that as we gather to pray, to sing, to study your word, that we would find you most glorious in all that we do. And Father, I pray the same thing for other churches in the Antelope Valley. I think specifically of Brian Fellowship in Palmdale. I pray that you're with uh, Pastor Sparks this morning as he is bringing your word to those people. And I pray that they would have that same marvelous taste of the glory of God that we hope to experience here this morning. Lord, that's only by your grace. That only happens because you decide that we should have that experience. And so we, we ask, we, we want that experience, Lord. We want a, a clearer vision of you, a greater taste of your glory to transform our hearts and minds and to make us more Christ-like. So be with us now as we open the word and uh, show yourself to be more than we expected and more glorious than we could have anticipated. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, okay, so we're on chapter 10 now. We're at this next major event in, in the book of Acts. And this one takes up two chapters. This one story occupies two full chapters. It's told twice in the same amount of detail. So when that kind of thing happens in the Bible, you have to say, what are you up to, Lord? Why is this so significant? Couldn't this have been summarized? Couldn't it have been less detailed? Did it have to be repeated? Um, so when God does those things, when he writes his word in those ways, I, I believe he does it on purpose. I was telling somebody this week, my version of Calvinism can be summarized as God does stuff on purpose. He, he does things for a reason. So my temptation when I was looking at this in preparation was, I'll just take 10 and 11 as one unit. We won't read the whole thing. I'll do a lot of summarization and I'll, I'll focus it down. Uh, but I pulled the trigger and committed to just these 23 verses. And later in the week, I got panicking going, I, I shouldn't have done that. This is wrong. This is not a good idea. Um, but I want you to know your God loves you so very much that he doesn't let me get away with those things. So uh, as I was preparing, I, I saw, oh, Lord, this is why we need to handle just this little portion. Um, so I was praying during the confession. Uh, um, I was praying, Lord, thank you that you love your people. You give them these things. And then you let me stand in the middle and not mess it up. Um, that you let me be the one that says these. I, I just can't believe what I get to do sometimes. It's, it's amazing. So thank God for his kindness to us. Um, so here's what we're going to do. What we're going to see this morning in this, this brief introduction to this larger story is we're going to see really the rock that, God, or that Christ builds his church on. Um, pretty obvious, wasn't it? Wait, what? <laughs> Hopefully we'll, we'll develop that as we go through. But really, this is about Jesus building his church. And uh, so to get there, we need to look at these three things, Cornelius, the vision, and then Peter. 
we'll kind of zoom in on those three things as we go through this. Um, so it begins with this introduction to Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion, and he's at Caesarea. Uh, so can you put up the, the um, map real quick? Just as a refresher, we just looked at this last week, um, where Peter wound up at the end of last chapter was down here in Joppa, and um, Cornelius is up here in Caesarea. So you can see they're not terribly far apart. That's probably, I think I read something like 31 miles or something like that. It's a day's journey. It's a full day's journey. Um, and so that's where we left our players was Peter's in Joppa. We just got introduced to Cornelius. He's up in Caesarea. Now Caesarea is, uh, at the time, was a predominantly um, Gentile city. It was mostly Roman. There was a, a big headquarters there, and that's why there would be a centurion station in Caesarea. So this is a very largely uh, Gentile area in, in that, that was built there. And it's even named after Caesar, right? So that kind of gives you a hint that that's what's going on. So this man Cornelius is stationed there. That's where his, his military unit is positioned. And he's introduced as, um, as a centurion. First of all, his, his name, Cornelius, might indicate, it's not definitive, but it might indicate that he was a freed slave. Because in 82 BC, a man named Cornelius Sula freed about 10,000 slaves. So Cornelius then became a very popular name for freed slaves to take on. So it might be that he was um, a freed slave, uh, just based on his name. We're not sure. Hard to tell. Um, he was a centurion. And a centurion was an a, a upper rank. It wasn't lower ranking. This was an upper ranking Roman military officer. He was in charge of about 100 men. Actually, it was a century, right? Century is 100 years. A centurion, yeah, 100, but the way it got actually implemented was anywhere from 200 to 300 men would be under his command. So he's part of this military operation. He's, he's a high-ranking individual. He's got soldiers underneath him. And um, he, it says that he was part of what was called the Italian cohort. Um, a cohort was a, a, a group of... 10 or 11 of those uh, centurion ranks. So it would be like part of a bigger uh, arrangement. And his was called the Italian cohort. They found in Austria an inscription from about this time that put the Italian cohort in Palestine all the way up to 68 AD. So here's another example of history and the Bible going, yeah, duh, they agree. We have proof that the Italian cohort was in Palestine around that time period. Um, now, that was up to 68. It, notice it's kind of open-ended. This is all happening around 40. So it could be that the, the cohort was regularly stationed there. Uh, one of the things about the Italian cohort, though, was it was not a regular army unit. It was like a reserve unit. So uh, Cornelius probably had another job. He may have had you know, a, a, another family someplace else, and he would go on active duty and be stationed there on occasion. Um, so that's who he is in his military function and, and what he's doing. The rest of this section, verses 1 through 8, describe him in some really interesting ways. Uh, it says that he was a God-fearer. He feared God. That's a technical term that the Jews used to describe a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh. They came to synagogue. They would want to know more about Yahweh, but they hadn't taken the step to be circumcised and become part of the nation of Israel. So this is a, a reverent Jew, uh, Gentile who is interested in Yahweh. He's interested in the Jewish religion, but he just hasn't taken that next step uh, to, to convert fully to Judaism. So it, it's, 
they're kind of in a middle ground. They're not those rank Gentiles worshiping idols, and they're not quite Jews, so they're kind of in this, this gap there. But listen to how it describes him. It says that he gave alms generously to the people. Um, alms was giving money. It, he would give money to those around him and with people in need. And the other thing is, I look through the book of Acts, and when it says the people, that almost always refers to Jews. It will talk about the Gentiles and the people. It does that kind of thing, separates the two. So it's possible that what Cornelius is doing is he is admiring Jewish culture, admiring, admiring Jewish religion, and he's helping Jews out by giving them money. And that's why later on it says that he is well spoken of by the, by the Jews. In verse 22, that's the other way that he's described. Um, there's only two places, though, where the people refers not specifically to Gentiles, but the church. But when it says that, it drops the the. And I don't want to get pedantic and, and get all nitpicky about, you know, these little word games like that. It's just kind of interesting that it never refers to the Gentile masses as the people, only the Jews or the, the church. So this is who he is. He's giving money to help people in a, a largely Gentile area. He's giving money to Jews, it seems. So he is a, a God-fearing man. He prayed continually. And if he's a God-fearer, he's not praying to idols continually. He's praying to Yahweh continually. So this is the picture we get of the man. Um, uh, 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 he's devout. He's a very religious person. He is very serious about, um, about pursuing religion. And he's a generous person. Uh, he doesn't just you know, study his theology and be mean to everybody as a centurion and go stab folks. He's, he's generous. He's devout. He's a, he seems like what we would call a very good man. And that's why the Jewish nation loved him. So as he's, uh, one of the commentaries said that he was praying because it's the ninth hour. Does it say that he was praying? It doesn't say that. I don't think he was praying. I don't, he might have been. But anyway, at the ninth hour, which would be uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, I believe. Yeah, let's just call it, we'll call it three o'clock. It's just between us, right? So three o'clock in the afternoon, an angel appears to him. An angel of God appears to a Gentile, not in the temple, not at synagogue, at his home. An angel of God appears to him. This is a pretty significant event that happens to him. And so, of course, he stares at him in terror. This is the reaction. If, if you ever see pictures of angels and they're, they're really pretty ladies with big white wings, most of the description of angels have people fall on their face because they're terrifying. They're, they're not cute little fat babies with little tiny wings. They are scary beings. The glory of God shines on them, and so it's really arresting. And so when Cornelius sees this angel, he's terrified. It, it, it scares him, and, and it, the, the centurion calls out to him, Cornelius, and he says, What is it, Lord? Now, he's not calling him Yahweh. Your Lord there is a technical term. It's like, Sir, what is it, Sir? What is it, exalted person? And the, the, uh, the angel then says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. They have ascended as in a memorial. So the good things that he's been doing have not been passed over by God. God didn't look at him and go, ah, Gentile, not, not talking to you. You're out. That's kind of the picture sometimes we get of, uh, especially old covenant theology is God only worked amongst the, the, uh, the Jews and everybody else was cut off. Yeah, except Rahab. 
Well, okay, okay, Rahab. Yeah, except for Tamar. Yeah, well, okay, Rahab and Tamar. Except for, and the list keeps going on. There's just more and more of these non-Jews who get included. So it's not that God has put this wall separating the Jews and, from the, uh, the Gentiles and saying, I don't deal with them. But what's about to happen is there's, there's going to be after this, this large breaking out where the Gentiles are going to come in in greater numbers than they ever have. So this is what's really, really great about watching Cornelius is God has taken notice of this man. Your alms and your prayers have risen as a memorial. They have come up before God. The word there is, is mnemonic. Have you ever heard of mnemonics? They're things you use to memorize stuff. It has to do with memory. What he's saying is God has, has remembered all the things that you've done. These good deeds that you've done to other people, these prayers that you've offered, God remembers them. They have come up as a, as a memorial before God. And so one of the questions I thought kind of came up with this is, does God hear the, uh, do, does God hear the prayers of sinners? Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope he's hearing mine. Um, the reason that comes up is because in John 9, 31, uh, there's a statement that says, we know God does not listen to sinners. And so some people use that as a proof text to say, well, you know, God doesn't hear those who pray who aren't his. Um, Got to read that in context. Who said, we know that God doesn't hear sinners? It was a man who was born blind and who was healed. So this isn't a dogmatic statement of the scriptures saying God doesn't listen to sinners. What it is is one man interpreting it because what was happening is the Pharisees were going, who healed you? We, we know this guy. He's a sinner. And so the guy goes, look, we know people don't, God doesn't listen to sinners, but he listened to that guy. He, he healed me, he, a man born blind. So we can't take that too dogmatically. It's absolutely true that that man said it. It isn't necessarily true that that's a fact. Um, and as a matter of fact, it looks like it isn't because he heard Cornelius' prayers. Uh, he, he, God remembered Cornelius' prayers. So if uh, somebody you know who is not a church person, is, is not a believer, if they pray, it doesn't necessarily mean it's an offense to God. It might be. It might be that they're trying to play God or something, or it might be the cry of a broken heart calling out to God, please help. And God can answer those. He, he might answer that in his time. So that's a picture that we get of, of Cornelius is a man who's not quite a Jew, who's very Gentile, and God hearing his prayer. I think it's beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm given a lot of hope because I know I'm far from perfect. And I'm calling out to God, and I'm trusting that he's hearing me. I'm, I'm hoping that he's listening to my prayers. And I have a lot of scripture to back up the idea that, yes, he does. He cares. He wants to hear. So does God hear the prayer of sinners? Does he hear yours? Does he hear mine? He heard Cornelius's. Pray to God. So his prayers have risen up to God. They're a memorial before God. And now the next command is, now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So again, we're in Caesarea. He's telling him to go to Joppa, send some troops. Notice he doesn't tell Cornelius, go there. Cornelius has responsibilities. He has duties to perform in Caesarea. God actually cares about what you do. He cares about what you do for a living. It's something that he's interested in. He doesn't tell Cornelius, abandon the army and go to Caesarea or go to Joppa. He says, send some troops, send some people down there. 
So that's another thing is God comes to him through this angel and tells him to send for Peter. Have Peter come to you because I know you're too entrenched. There's too much going on. So that's the command. And when the angel who spoke to him departed, Luke, why couldn't you have explained that more? <laughs> what did that look like? Did he just boop and he's gone? Or did he ascend in a flame through the ceiling? Or, you know, how, how did he depart? Did he walk out the door and just was gone? I would love to know what it means when the angel departed. It must have been amazing because it was terrifying to see him appear. So it must have been something else to see him go, too. I, we can ask Cornelius when we get to heaven. He'll explain it. I'm sure he's told the story millions of times by now. He'll be glad to tell it again. So after the angel has departed, he calls two servants and a devout soldier. The same word used to describe Cornelius as a devout man now is used to describe one of his soldiers, a devout soldier. And you notice that he worshiped God and all his household. So everybody in his house, this man didn't just piously kind of hive off by himself, sneak into synagogue and come home. His whole household was, was devoted to Yahweh. And so some of his soldiers, of course, would be in on that too. They would want to, they would hear about these things and be interested. So here's another Gentile who's already included. He's at least devout. That's a positive thing. They're not believers yet. They haven't heard about Jesus Christ yet, but they're devout. And so he, he tells these people to go off to Joppa. He explained to them everything that just happened. This is what the angel told me. I want you to go to, to Joppa and look at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's out by the sea. Find Simon Peter and bring him back to me. That's, that's your mission today. So that's what they get to do. This is Cornelius. This is the man that we're, we're going to deal with quite a bit in the next couple of chapters. So now the vision. Now what happens meanwhile? Um, so that happens, and then the camera swings over to Joppa. The next day, so the, the soldier and the two servants are on route. They're, they're heading toward Joppa already. And then Peter, at noon, goes up on the housetop. The sixth hour is about noon. So he goes up on the rooftop. Houses back in those days had external stairs, and people hung out on the roofs. That's what they did. Um, when I was in Korea, I went to a friend's house, and we went and sat on the roof. That's, we don't do that here because our roofs are pointed and you tend to roll off. But um, in those flatter roofs, you could do that. That was a place to gather. You'd be safe because nobody would come by and bother you. You'd be elevated, that kind of thing. So that's what happened. Peter goes up on the roof. It's probably got a covering. It's probably got some chairs or something up there so he can be comfortable. Uh, he goes up there to pray. Um, so Peter wants to go be alone. He heads to the roof. And while he's up there, he gets hungry. Uh, know the feeling. Anybody ever been hungry? <laughs> Um, anybody ever been hungry while they're praying and try to pay attention? Sometimes maybe it's best to just do what Peter did, which is he took a break from his praying and he said, he yelled down to the house, hey, could you guys fix me something? I'm starving. You know, so if you ever have problems focusing on prayer because of something like this, it's okay if you take a break and deal with it. God won't be offended. Um, one of the things I do is when I'm praying, sometimes my mind starts going through my day and I start planning stuff. And I used to beat myself up and go, oh, you are so not holy. You need to focus on prayer. Re book we're reading in men's group said, you know, when that happens, just pray about those things. They're important to you. Pray about them and then press on. So that's what happens with Peter. He got hungry. Yells downstairs, hey, how about some lunch? And, and as he does that, he falls into a trance. And the word there for, for trance is where we get the word ecstasy. 
ecstasis. It's an ecstatic experience. It is something that is just overwhelming. It's not like, um, like he just zoned out for a minute, like his blood sugar crashed because he was hungry or something. He went into this ecstatic state. So now what he's seeing is part of this vision. And what he sees is the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. I, every time I, th this scene plays in my head, I picture a bed sheet, a big white bed sheet. Um, the word there for the sheet is probably something a little coarser. It's probably something like a sail, like what a sail would be made out of, a thicker, coarser linen, like it matters. It comes down from heaven and it opens up, and inside are all sorts of critters, animals, reptiles, birds of the air, all kinds of things in there. And a voice in this vision comes to Peter, and he says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What he's telling him is he wants him to get up and go down and kill one of these creatures and devour it. The word for kill is slaughter. Like you would, you know, you take an animal to a butcher and they slaughter it for you. The intention here is that you would consume this. And Peter's response is, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Aren't those two interesting words? When you think of the dietary laws of the Jews... You think of foods that are clean and unclean. Critters that climb around on the ground are unclean. Pigs, because they have a cloved hoof but don't chew the cud, are unclean. Cows, because they have a cloved hoof and they chew the cud, they're clean. So we get this clean and unclean distinction. But Peter, in this vision, uses the words common and unclean. And so I was looking at common, and you know, common, you know what it means? Common. No big word there. You thought I was going to pull out a fun one, huh? It just means common. It means every day. I would say that the, that would be the opposite of holy. In, in religious practices, something was holy. It was set aside for this purpose. So when they created the temple, when they built the temple, they built fire pans so that they could pick up the ashes off the altar. That fire pan you didn't take home with you. You didn't store it in your closet at home. It was holy unto the Lord because it touched the altar. It stayed at the temple. A fire pan... That was that holy, that because it was used in that service, it was set aside, not for common use. So I think what Peter is saying is, I've never eaten any unholy food, any, any uh, common or unclean food. Um, I am a good, obedient Jew. So his response to me sounds like what he's saying is, you know, this is a test. Obviously, this is a test. This vision is trying me to see if I'm going to compromise, and I'm not going to compromise. And so he says, no, I won't do that. But the voice then says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. No, he says, what God has made clean, don't call, or don't call common. This, this is not something that's not holy to the Lord. God has made it clean, therefore it is holy to him. And then it says, this happened three times, and then it was taken up into heaven. So this vision repeats three times to him. Why three times? Because God's a trinity, and this is the magic number. It's to emphasize it, to say, this is really important. Peter, I mean this. And so it drills it into his head. Now, he's having a vision. I don't think he necessarily chose his words so much as he saw what his response would be. So God orchestrated this vision so that he could communicate something extremely important to Peter. We are not going to understand this vision today. It gets explained later. So for right now, we'll just let it hang, okay? It, you've already read ahead in Acts. You know what the vision's about. 
suspend that. Act like you don't know. Pretend with me that you don't know what it means. So that's the vision that he sees. He gets this, this point three times. And then in the very next verse, it says, Peter was perplexed as to what it could mean. Peter was perplexed. It seems pretty obvious to me. Doesn't it seem like God just announced to him, Peter, I've just made all food clean. There is no unclean food. Go eat whatever you want. That seems pretty clear. And then to give it three times, that's really beaten into your head. Go have a cheeseburger. But Peter's perplexed by it. I think the vision aspect of it said, Peter, there's more to this than, you're, than it sounds like. It's more complicated because Peter's no dummy, right? We've heard him preach. We know he understands what's going on. So he is confused by this. He's like, there's, there's more to this than I understand, I think. So that's the vision. We're going to leave that hang for a little bit, okay? We'll, we'll, as we go further into the story, we'll get to unpack it more. And it, and it does have a richer, fuller meaning than just go eat a cheeseburger. Um, there's more to it. But now we need to shift the focus onto Peter. So that was his vision, and then this is Peter. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision could mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry at Simon's house, stood at the gate. So God's timing is just perfect, isn't it? Peter falls into a trance, and when he finally he's back, he, he hears a knock on the gate. Hello? Oh, wow, what's going on? And then, so they're at the gate, and they're, call, uh, they're calling out and asking whether there is a Simon Peter. Is, have we got the right house? Is this where Simon Peter is? And what, the bio, what Luke writes is, the Spirit said to him, so this isn't a vision anymore. Now the Holy Spirit, and however the Holy Spirit does, does this, communicates to him and says, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation. Rise, kill, and eat. Maybe that's part of it, right? Rise, go down and meet them. Um, go kill them and eat them? No, that can't be what that means. But he does say rise, and then go and meet them without hesitation. That word for hesitation there, it's repeated again in chapter 11 when re Peter retells the story, and there it's translated as without distinction. It's the same word. If Peter is looking at these men and making a distinction, that would cause him to hesitate. Uh, they're not like me. I'm not going to go down and hang out with these Gentiles. So it, both translations work. I don't think the translators are cheating us by saying hesitation instead of uh, distinction. They, they both kind of fit the context. But what the Holy Spirit has said to him is go down and, and find those men and, and don't worry about it. You go talk to them because I told you to. So this is all what's percolating in, in Peter's head. And so he goes down and he says, I'm the one you're looking for. Why did you come looking for me? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and godly man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, has, was directed by a holy angel for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Could you imagine getting a call like that? You, you, you have somebody who you never thought the gospel would reach, and they come and they say, an angel told me last night to come over and tell you to come to my house and talk to me. I mean, that's a huge setup. Peter, this is the evangelistic moment of the universe. This is the best opportunity you're ever going to have. An angel has set this up. So it's the spirit who has told him go, and now he finds out what the spirit told him to do was listen to what an angel told somebody else to do. 
this is pretty big setup. So who has been involved in this, in this movement of Peter from Joppa to Caesarea so far? A holy angel sent from God, a vision, a voice from heaven speaking to him, and now the Holy Spirit is involved, telling him to go do this. Do you see why Luke is, has spent so much time on this? This must be, just the anticipation is building up, thinking this must be huge. What's going to happen that, that all of these uh, supernatural forces are involved in this? That they're calling Peter to go do this. So the Spirit tells him to go, and then the section ends that he invited them in. The reason he invited them in is it's a day's journey. It's probably, you know, it's noon. It's too late to take off and go back to Caesarea to be traveling at night by then. So he tells the visitors, come in and stay. We'll get up and we'll leave first thing in the morning. So that's what the plan is. Now, I said this part was about Peter. So what's God's point in, in writing this part here, this, this next thing? That, again, that could have been summarized. Well, remember what the, the angel told Cornelius. Go find Simon, who is called Peter. He's in the house of Simon the Tanner. Now, in historical reality, in, in the time, if we were to transport back in time and go back and listen to these things as they happened, that would be accurate to say he stayed with Simon the Tanner, and his name was Simon Peter. Those would be true. As Luke is writing it, as the Holy Spirit is moving right, Luke to write these down, why did he name the Tanner? What was the point in naming the Tanner? We'll never hear about this guy again. Couldn't he have just said, for, for clarity's sake, I'm, you know, as you're writing, go, this would be a better way to say this. Simon stayed with a friend of his who was a tanner by the sea. He didn't have to name him. So what the angel was saying by Simon Peter, he might be dif differentiating. So when you get there, don't just ask for Simon. And then you show up and, and you needed a tanner? No, the other Simon. Go back and do it again. But the way it gets written, it didn't have to be confusing for us that he had to be that specific. So what I'm guessing, what I, my impulse is to say, God does stuff on purpose. He wrote this this way. He confused us with two Simons in the same household at the same time so that he can announce this is Simon Peter. So he would remind us of something. Do you, do you remember how Simon got the name Peter? He was born Simon. It was Jesus who looked at him and said, now you're Peter. And where that happens is, in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, different Caesarea, Philippi would have been a different part of the uh, area, but Caesarea appears in this story too. He asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is how Simon got the name Peter. 
Now, he was well known amongst the church as Simon Peter, so he gets the name before he got the name in the writing. But that's the, the thing. So here's the question. What does he mean, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? What he said was, Simon, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. So now Roman Catholics look at that and go, here's the pope. The church rests on the pope. This is the institution. Peter was the first pope. Some Protestants in reaction against that say, no, because Petros is a masculine noun and Petra is feminine. And so he's not talking about Peter being the rock. Um, you know me, what am I going to say at this point? Neither one of them are quite right. There's more to it than that. Uh, Petra and Petros are saying the same thing. So he, Jesus is telling him there's something about Peter on which the church will be built. So what I want to do is look at this in light of what has just happened and, and not say this is exhaustive, this is the total meaning of what it means for Peter to be the rock, but instead to say, let's pick up Acts chapter 10 and use it as one lens. Acts chapter 10 and 11, look, use it as just one lens to look at this statement that Peter, Petras, is the Petra. And see what that means. Because I think it'll help illuminate it. I think it'll help us understand it. So what has Peter done so far in this book up to this point? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon all the disciples. It's Peter out front preaching. And Peter is preaching so forcefully and with so much of the Spirit and with so much conviction about the person of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, 5,000 people get baptized that day. This is the inbreaking of the church into the Jewish people. Jews are being called into the church. Jerusalem is set on fire. They hear about this guy. And what we see in the rest of the, uh, the book, up for quite a while, we see more and more people coming in, but they're all Jews. Now, some people make the mistake. I read a commentary and just almost slammed it shut. Was They said, Cornelius was the first, con first Gentile convert to Christianity. Who was the first Gentile convert to Christianity? the Ethiopian eunuch. So there's a distinction we need to make here between the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius because Cornelius is significant. He gets much more real estate in the book than the Ethiopian eunuch did. What was, what was Cornelius the first Gentile to do? Not to believe in Jesus, but now he believes in Jesus. And do you remember last chapter we ran into disciples who were in Caesarea? He's going to put his hope in Jesus Christ. He's going to put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he is now a member of the church. That's why it says that Peter is going to be the rock upon which the church is built. Peter is the one who brought the word to the Jews, and now he's the one that God chose, because God could have sent Philip just like he did previously, but he chose Simon Peter. And he said, I want you to go to this Cornelius, and I want you to tell him the gospel. And Cornelius is now going to be the inbreaking of the Gentiles into the church. They're going to have to figure out what to do with this converted household of Cornelius with the rest of the disciples in, in uh, Caesarea. Peter is the rock on which the church is built because he's the one who announced the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's the, that's the building of the church is these two people coming together in faith in Jesus Christ. So this is why Peter is called the rock. He's called Peter. is because Jesus is going to build his church. Notice it's Jesus is going to build his church. And Jesus is going to build 
his church. So some of the ways that the Pope gets enacted within Roman Catholicism is it seems like it's the Pope's church. He can speak ex cathedra. He can speak without error on certain things. He is the head of all the bishops and everybody. Take that picture of, of the, the Pope and apply it to Peter in the Bible, and he's not a Pope. He just isn't. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't do those kind of things. As a matter of fact, when we get to the, the first council at Jerusalem, he submits to James. So that's where I say the Roman Catholics have got it wrong in the way they take it. Peter was himself a very important person. He was the rock. He was the one who Jesus would use to build his church, but not to turn him into a pope. He would be the rock who would be the one who announces that confession. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He would be the one who announces that to the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the rock on which the church is built. So again, I don't think this exhausts every explanation, every possible way that that, that rock metaphor could play out. But it sure seems to me like this is a good lens to look at it and go, let's take a look at what the Bible says about Peter, not what we want Peter to be or not be. Let's let the Bible tell us. And what we see Peter doing is an extraordinarily important thing. And the reason I think that's that we can smuggle in the P Peter part, it, I'm not the only one to do it, by the way. I've read another commentator who did pretty much the same thing, just took it in a slightly different direction. So I'm not making this up, hopefully. Jesus loves you and he lets me not mess it up, is my, my theory. So this is the rock on which the church, Jesus builds his church, and his church is Jew and Gentile. No distinction. Go without hesitation. Go without distinction. Take the message to both of them. That's why we're going to spend so much time in 10 and 11 looking at this is because for the Jewish people, this is earth-shattering. The Gentiles are coming in? But we thought he was our Messiah. We thought he was our king. We thought he was going to rule in Israel. The Gentiles are coming in? We thought he was going to subdue the Gentiles, beat them into a pulp, and then they'd all cower at his throne. We, we're going to worship with them? That's such a world-changing thing. That's why three people are involved. The voice from heaven, a holy angel, and the spirit have to convince uh, Peter to do this. Peter had to go to Joppa and to Lydia, or to Lydda, remember, and heal a blind man and raise a girl from the dead to move him into position to see God is, is active and working so that when he got to Cornelius, he would announce the gospel to him without hesitation. We'll get more of that next week as, we, as Peter arrives. But right now, what we need to see is that this is the mission that Peter's on. This is the mission that Jesus is on. This is the mission that the church is. We are gathering people in, Jew and Gentile alike. There's no distinction. I've said this before. When, when the race issues happen in South Carolina, racism is incompatible with Christianity. It just it flies in the face of this. You can't do it. There's no place for it. And, and this is why, because Jesus is saving all people all different types of people. He's not saving just the Jews. He's saving them all. And so this is Peter, our rock, taking the message to the Gentiles so that they can hear, so that they can be brought in. Now, it's going to take a number of years for the, the church to work this out. Um, we're going to go through the rest of Acts, and they're still going to be struggling with it. We'll get to the book of Galatians, and they're still struggling with it. it it's still an ongoing issue. It, it's hard to make those changes. So if the church today, and I don't mean this church, just the church in general, is struggling with racism, 
we got a long pedigree of it. It's going to take a lot of work to get through that kind of stuff. But with God's help and with God's power and with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be able to work this out. So there's hope. There's hope in this. Um, the hope is that it was Jesus building his church, not Simon building his church, not Simon being the church himself, but God using Peter to build his church. So this is the setup. Now what we're left with is he invents the men in and we're just, our toes are hanging over the edge. Well, what happens next? That'll have to be next week. We'll have to get there. Um, but for right now, the anticipation of what comes when we arrive at Cornelius' house is, is pretty impressive because of all the work that God has done up to this point to get Cornelius ready to hear it, to get Peter ready to say it. This is what our God does. So do you think Jesus is at all interested in building and, and furthering his church throughout the world? Do you think he cares about um, the people who in China are, are having their churches shut down and Bibles burnt? You think he cares at all about the Egyptian Christians who were beheaded because they wouldn't say that Jesus, they wouldn't deny their faith? Do you think he cares at all about our church being here in the Antelope Valley just kind of humming along? I think he cares about all of this because he's building his church, because he's got a purpose, he's got a point. And so we have to be ready to welcome those who aren't like us, who are different, people who might surprise us. Because it's Jesus building the church. Peter is the rock. His confession is the rock. And we're the, we're the byproduct of it. We're the ones who are welcomed in. So I can't wait to get to the rest of it. I almost want to just say, okay, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to keep going. Because it's so hard to break up this story. But uh, for time's sake, um, attention span's sake, my throat, I think we'll just end it right here and, and pick up the rest of the story next week. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said to Peter that on him you would build his church. And the tremendous promise, Lord, is that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The gates of hell were not there to attack, but to keep people out. And so, Lord, the gates of hell can't withstand the assault of the church, Lord, as you go and you grab people from the gates of hell, from the edge of the abyss, and you rescue them and you draw them to yourself. The gates can't close on them. Because, Lord, you're building your church. And, and Jesus, as we go through our week being just ordinary, regular Christians, doing the things that you've called us to do, like you did with, with um, Cornelius, you didn't call him out of his centurionship. You left him be and you brought the gospel to him. Lord, as we go through our daily lives doing the things that you've called us to, Lord, we pray that we would all be your people, ready to announce the truth of the gospel being honest workers, diligent in what you've called us to do, and glorifying your name in all that, ha all that we do, all that we, we were called to be part of. And Lord, would you build your church? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.